Hey, do you remember the days before Netflix when you actually had to wait an entire week to catch the next episode of your favorite show? And if it ended on a cliffhanger moment, oh well, too bad, so sad, you had to wait seven whole days to see what happened next. And if you weren't going to be home when you weren't around your, if you weren't around your TV when the episode aired, you'd have to try and set your VCR, right? And that was not an easy task. It was more complicated than setting the flight sequences at NASA. How did we ever survive? Well, now, of course, with all the streaming services available, you can catch episode after episode after episode of your favorite show at your convenience. We've even had to come up with a name for this behavior, binge watching, right? Now, I'm not sure what happens in your house, but here's what happens in mine. I'm always late to the party, meaning usually everybody else in our home has watched the latest and greatest TV series, and they'll tell me how good it is, and then eventually I'll binge watch it at my convenience when I have time so I can kind of get in on the family conversation. And so as I'm getting caught up on the story, my wife or my kids will inevitably ask me, hey, what part are you at? What episode are you on? What's happening in the story? And I'll tell them where I'm at in the story and they'll be like, oh, just wait. The next episode, it, it, it's awesome. You won't believe what happens next. Hey, maybe you've experienced the same thing with somebody regarding a book that you're reading and that, that they're reading now and you're discussing it and you're like, hey, what chapter are you on? Oh man. Just wait until you see what happens in the next chapter. See, every story has a plot, and the plot changes. With each episode and in every chapter, the plot twists and turns, and it morphs and it changes. And there's chapters that make us think. There's episodes that make us cry. There's parts that make us laugh out loud. And sometimes there's moments of uncertainty that just make us on the edge of our seats, waiting to see what happens next. You know, the story of life is a lot like that. Please turn in your Bible or on your device to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Okay, Ecclesiastes 3. You know, just like your favorite TV series or novel, the story of life is divided up into unique segments as well. The author of Ecclesiastes doesn't call them episodes or chapters. Rather, he calls them seasons. And they include moments that make us think and cry. Moments that make us laugh and sometimes maybe even moments that make us hang on the edge of our seats to see what happens next. And we can't binge watch them from our couch. We can't fast forward through the hard parts. We can't rewind the beautiful parts. Wouldn't that be awesome? Hey, what parts of, of your story, of, of your life, do you wish you could just hit a rewind button and go back to? 
We simply have to, to like live this story out. The ups, the downs, the twists, the turns, the laughter, the tears, and trust God with the ending. You know, we're considering the first 22 verses of this chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 today, but it's the first eight verses of this text that will likely be familiar to you, even if you're not familiar with the Bible. These verses were immortalized in a 1965 song by the birds called Turn, Turn, Turn. Do you remember that song? Maybe, maybe you know that song. You know, it was a response to the Vietnam War, and these words are often quoted at funerals. In fact, they are likely some of the most familiar verses in the Bible to our entire culture, who usually don't even know that they are from the Bible. And the reason I think that they resonate so much with people is because these verses tell the story of life, like of everybody's life. This is the human experience. These are the episodes. These are the chapters of this thing that we call life. And I'm just going to read them for us. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. Time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones, a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Okay, the, this poem is called a mirrorism, which is a literary device in which opposites are used to kind of encapsulate everything in between. Okay, these 14 pairings are meant to describe like the entire human experience. This is the cycle of life. This, this is it. We are born, we die, and in between we cry and we laugh and we hurt and we heal and we scatter and we gather. And like whether you're a king like Solomon who wrote these very words or a pauper who maybe would have read it, this is you. Whether you live in Dufferin, Denmark, or the Democratic Republic of Congo, this is you. Leafs, Habs, Bruins fan, this is you. From the biggest celebrity on a silver stage in Hollywood to the most unknown laborer in a steel mill in Hamilton, this is you. And this is me. And this is us. This is the story, the plot. These are the episodes, the chapters, the seasons of these things we call our lives. And whatever episode you are currently in, whatever season you're journeying through right now, just like when my family asks me, hey, what part are you at? It's, 
It's going to change. And just wait until you see what happens next. And so why are these eight verses in the Bible? I mean, they speak of inevitabilities, but what are we supposed to like do with these inevitabilities? These first eight verses, they tell our story, but is it like the whole story? Born, some ups and downs, die, thanks for coming out. Well, the answer would have been yes if the author would have stopped at verse 8. You know, this thing called life just seems pretty meaningless if we stop after verse 8. We'll be born, we'll have some good times, we'll have some not-so-good times, and then we will die. Like, is that it? <laughs> but he did not stop at verse 8, and the following 13 verses, they actually speak to the first 8. And in them, we discover that our stories are not meaningless. In fact, they couldn't be more meaningful. <laughs> So why are our stories meaningful? Why is your story meaningful? Because our stories are written to point us to something more. Our stories are written to point us to something more. See, in the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes 3, the author is not describing things as they were intended to be. He's, he's simply describing things the way they are. This is just the reality. We live in a fallen world. <laughs> We live in a world where sin has caused all kinds of pain and damage and heartbreak and sickness and war and death, and we're going to experience some of that. And although the Bible also speaks to the comfort that God provides and the hope during all this brokenness, like, please don't misinterpret that. I mean, in the midst of it, there are also some beautiful moments. We read them of healing and building and laughing and dancing and it's these moments that are meant to reveal to us, to point us towards something better. They're meant to point us towards a kingdom where this is the constant reality. See, look at verse 11. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You know, C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, No creature is made with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Humans feel hunger and, and thirst, and food and water exist to satisfy those desires. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water for him to swim in. But there exists in humans a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy. And so the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's saying we all have these desires, right, to be loved. And that must mean there is something that exists to provide us with, like, real, authentic, unconditional love. Like, if, if, if I crave that, there must be something that can satisfy that. We all have the desire for joy. That must, must mean there's something that can provide joy. We all desire peace, and that must mean that somehow peace is actually possible. But, like, where is it? Because when I watch the evening news, I just don't see it. 
You know, in his book, The Problem of God, author and pastor Mark Clark describes the moment of processing his own father's death like this. He says, when I stood over my father's casket, there was something within me that knew the reality I was experiencing was disjointed and wrong. And in that was an assumption of a way the universe was supposed to be. And this, death, was not it. See, the author of Ecclesiastes is describing in the first eight verses a world that is not the way it was supposed to be. But this broken world provides us with cravings for a different world, in fact. In these first eight verses that describe our lives, the ups and the downs and the wins and the losses, the laughter and the tears, birth and death, none of it is meaningless, not one moment. Okay, the story of life, the heartbreak, followed by the healing, the changing seasons, maybe you're experiencing that right now. They all exist to make us aware of this craving in our souls. The bad makes us long for something better. And the good makes us believe that there is something better. It's all there to drive us towards Him. Listen, every craving for love and acceptance, every heartbreak, every time we feel the pain of grief, the sting of disappointment, the hunger for meaning, it's there to point us towards the God who can fill the hole that those things create in our hearts. Every time we feel the love of of family and friends, every time we laugh, every time we dance in joy, we revel in the birth of a brand new baby we get this feeling of like meaning and substance like what i'm doing and who i am actually matters it's all there to point us towards the god who is the author of these things every time we see people reconciling and forgiving one another and living in peace with one another it's all there to point us towards a kingdom that represents the full expression of these things. Every episode, every chapter, every season, all of it exists that we might know that he exists, that God exists. He's placed eternity in our hearts because he wants us to be with him for eternity. And so what does that tell us about God? You know, that's a crucial question. Every, every time we go to the Bible, every time we consider and study Scripture, we're supposed to ask ourselves, what does what I just read tell me about God? Well, it tells us that God wants to be known. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not impersonal. He's the opposite. Okay, so much, in fact, that he uses every season of our lives. He squeezes every drop out of life, every good thing, every really hard thing, in an effort, in a hope that we might turn our faces towards heaven and see him. To know him. To know his greatness. To know his great love for us. The craving for something better that you feel in the hard times. The craving for more that you feel in the good times. God's saying, what you're craving is me. Look at at those first eight verses again. And look at them 
in relation to the story of your life. Think about the hard parts in your life. Think about the beautiful moments of your life and think of how, how they turned your face towards God. That he might be known by you. That he might carry you through those hard seasons and chapters. That he might rejoice with you in the, in the, in the, in the wins and the victories and the good times. Meaningless? Not one moment was Meaningless. Not one moment of your story, because every moment holds the potential for us to know him more. He wants to be known by you. Okay, but let's keep going, because there's, there's more here. There's more. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil, this is the gift of God. Okay, God wants us to embrace the life that we can see. I'm going to say that again. God wants us to embrace the life that we can see. See, the author speaks of these everyday moments, right? Eating and drinking and working, the mundane, and he stresses their importance. He says there's nothing better that's what he writes. And this isn't some kind of like carpe diem, seize the day, make the most of life while you can statement. This is more. This is better. This builds off the previous verses about knowing God. This is a call to live in the moment and enjoy every moment. He actually calls them a gift. And here's the gift to live every moment of our lives with an awareness of God's presence. That's the gift. This is a call to enjoy the life that God has given us now, today, knowing that God is in it. And he has purpose for it. Not to worry about what lies around every dark and unknown corner, but to view each day as what? As a gift. That's what he says. See, there are no mundane moments in Christ. This is a call to wake up and say, God, thank you for another night's sleep. God, thank you that you were with me and that you're with me now. What a gift. Right? What an absolute gift. This is about me going on my morning walk with my dog around the same block every morning, but breathing in the spring air, smelling the lilac bushes that are blooming right now. Aren't they awesome? <laughs> and saying, God, thanks for this moment. Thanks for this gift. To get home, to sip my coffee in my favorite chair and say, thanks for coffee, God. This is a gift. To hear my kids laughing upstairs as they're getting ready for their day and to say, thank you for letting me be their dad today, God. Gift. Gift. To listen to a phone call from a friend as they describe like a, a really serious challenge that they're going through and saying, God, thank you for giving me this opportunity right now to bring some hope into this person's life. It's hard, but it's a gift. This is an invitation and a challenge. It's an invitation to gratitude, and it's a challenge to make the most out of every moment of our lives. 
to see, to see the gift of embracing our limitations. You know, in his book, Things of Earth, author Joe Rigney urges us to embrace your creatureliness. Don't seek to be God. Instead, embrace the glorious limitations and boundaries that God has placed on you as a character in his story. Okay, like the author of Ecclesiastes, what he's saying is he's like, you're not God, and I'm not God. We don't know tomorrow. So let's embrace that, let's celebrate that, and let's make the most out of today. You know, I think this is at the heart of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, 27, when he said, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? When Jesus tells us to become like little children, you know, kids are the best at living in the moment, aren't they? Like kids just embrace today. They enjoy the life that they can see right in front of their little faces, yeah? And so again, what does this tell us about God? Well, it tells us that God cares about every moment of our lives and he desires to be intimately involved in them. God doesn't just care about the big moments. He cares equally, equally about what seem like small moments, insignificant, mundane moments, because there are no small moments. God cared deeply about what you were thinking when you woke up this morning. God actually cares about your driving to work tomorrow. <laughs> he cares about how you're going to react when you get cut off in traffic. He cares about where your mind will go as you commute to work. He cares. God cares about your approach to work when you get to your workplace. He cares about your attitude to your coworkers. He cares about our trip to the grocery store, our baseball game on Tuesday night, the dinner party that's on our calendars for Friday, your summer vacation plans. He cares. And it's all a gift. It's all important. It's all a chance to honor him. It's all a chance to include him in your plans. It's all a chance to learn and grow as the Holy Spirit does his work of transformation in our lives. It's all worship. And none of it is meaningless. It's all bursting with meaning. It's pregnant with potential because Jesus is in it. Okay, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. We tend to view the small moments of life, the mundane, the routine, as not important, don't we? Like we focus on the big, grand moments. We constantly look down the road at tomorrow. You know, when I just get that big promotion, then life will be better. I'll be happier. When my kids grow out of this difficult stage, things will be better. When I'm healed from this injury, my life will be back on track. But who knows, it's usually the small moments that determine the big moments. Because it is. It's the things that we learn in the valley that lead us to the mountaintop. It's our attitude in the trenches that lead to the victory. You know, it was, it was David's song in a shepherd's field <laughs> when he thought only the sheep were listening. As he embraced this mundane life that was right in front of his face, 
It was that song that he was singing that captured the heart of God. Because the sheep weren't the only ones listening. God was too. David embraced the life that he could see in front of him as a shepherd. As God prepared him for the life he could not see as a king. It all matters. It all matters. So where in life are you missing out on everything today has to offer because you're too busy looking at tomorrow? What beautiful gifts are you forfeiting today? What things are you viewing as mundane rather than gifts of grace from God to you and your life? What lessons might God be trying to teach you in your shepherd's field? And how can you become aware of his presence and embrace his desire to walk beside you in every moment of your life? God wants to be known by you. He wants to be intimately involved in every moment of your life. He wants us to embrace the life that we can see. And God wants us to place all our trust in him. Okay, the remaining verses of this text, they talk about the supremacy of God. The fact that one day God will judge every human action and attitude. You know, the author actually compares us to animals. <laughs> like, we're no better than the family dog. As they die, so do we. We have the same breath. We all become the same dust. And the final verse says, for, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them? The author's like, just like, we're, we're like animals. Like we live and we die and we don't know what happens. How can we know? How can we know if any of this matters? These 22 verses, they don't end with a statement. Very interestingly, they end with a question mark. Like who knows what life is about? Who knows if any of this matters? Who knows what happens after our life ends? This text ends with a question. But it's a text whose questions are meant to point us towards answers. And God has answered. He's answered in Jesus Christ. You can endure the judgment of God that the author talks about. You are more valuable than an animal. You can know what happens after you die. None of life is meaningless. See, Jesus took our judgment when he suffered on the cross to pay for our sins. The very fact that God sent his son into this world to save us speaks of our value. We can know this. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we can know what happens after we die and that God has prepared a place for us to spend eternity with him. We can experience his kingdom now and eternally. But we can only experience any of this by trusting him. In all the questioning, the heartbreak, the changing seasons, chapters, the episodes that we read about in these verses, the picture of this thing we call life. Life. On the surface, it could seem meaningless. 
But today I want you to read beyond what the words say and to hear the voice of God from his word telling us that it's not meaningless. In fact, nothing means more. There is a God who wants to be known by you. He longs to be intimately involved in every detail of your life, the big ones and the small ones. He is here today. And he wants to journey with you through all your days. And in the changing seasons of life, like we don't know what chapter's coming next. Just wait. This God simply asks, Will you trust me? Hey, maybe you're watching today and just like the author ended with a question mark, you're carrying a big question mark in your heart right now. Like there's some things in your life and as you look around the world that just don't make sense and, and you have some questions. Are you willing with whatever question you're carrying in your heart right now, whatever life is presenting to you, are you willing to trust God? with your questions. You know, if you are, would you pray with me as we end? Father, today I pray for whatever season each of us are currently journeying through. And we, we come together to declare our trust in you. God, for those that have never placed their trust in you by accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Today we say we trust you. I place my life in the hands of Jesus today. Trust you. For those in a season of birth or rebirth, we choose to trust you. For those in a season of, of death, maybe the death of a loved one or the death of a dream, death of a relationship, we choose to trust you in this season. For those whom you are planting somewhere new, we trust you. For those praying this prayer who feel like they're being uprooted, we trust you. For those praying this prayer who need healing, we trust you. Those who feel like they're being torn down and those who feel like they're being rebuilt, we trust you in the process, God. Those who are enduring a season of mourning and tears, we say we trust you, even in the pain. Those in a season of laughter and dancing, we trust you in our joy. For those that are feeling scattered, we say we trust you. Those who feel like they're being gathered, we trust you, God. We trust you. In our searching, in our surrendering, we trust you. God, we trust you when you ask us to be silent, and we trust you when you call us to speak up. Where there is love, let there be trust. And where there is hate, let let even in that place, let there be trust as well. We trust you in the midst of the wars that wage in the world and the wars that rage in our hearts, and we place trust in you to bring peace. 
we trust you. Because you are trustworthy. Because you are good. Because you love us like none other. And we trust you. And God, we pray these things in the name of the one whom our trust is rooted in, Jesus Christ. Amen.